Welcome to Dodgers Homestand, your behind-the-scenes look at what makes the Dodgers Stadium experience so special for baseball fans and ball players alike. A unique perspective on Dodgers baseball from someone who's there for every home game and who has one of the best seats in the house. And now, your host, the public address announcer for the Los Angeles Dodgers, the voice of God in blue heaven on earth, Todd Lights. Hey, thanks for stopping by. Right now, not in the PA booth at Dodger Stadium, where you'll normally find me, but inside Medicine Hat Studios in Studio City, California. And this is a rare Dodgers road trip episode of the Dodgers Homestand Podcast. I'm Todd Lights, public address announcer for the Los Angeles Dodgers at Dodger Stadium, and you are why I do this. I want to lift the veil and take you behind the scenes at Blue Heaven on Earth share with you the way I see the ballpark. Now, you probably know the Los Angeles Dodgers have a long and storied history, but did you know there's a man whose job is to preserve and steward that history into the future? His name is Mark Langell, and he's the official Dodgers team historian. Recently, I asked him for 10 minutes, and we talked for nearly an hour in the Vin Scully press box at the stadium. Here's part of that interview as a bridge to the next Dodgers homestand. You are the team historian. Well, that's the title. I don't want to make it seem like I'm the be-all, end-all as far as history, but ever since I was seven years old, I've just had this fascination with Dodger baseball, the history, the stories, and so uh, there may be people that know more than me, which is fine, but I definitely have a passion for it, and I can honestly say in 50 years since coming to my first game, I've never had a bad day at the ballpark. So how long have you been with the Dodger organization? Well, I was a beat writer for Pasadena Star News from 1989 until 1993, joined the front office in January of 1994, and then the great thing happened in 2002. They had two ownership changes, and they came to me and said, look, we don't really know what you're talking about, but you know what you're talking about. How would you like it if we called you the team historian and gave every miscellaneous assignment, everything going back to the 1880s, to you for, to worry about? And I was like, absolutely. And ironically, it seemed like it was a type of job that I had studied for my whole life because what's the joke? How did you become team historian? Don't hit the ball in Little League and you're well on your way. Mm-hmm. Pause for laughter. Mm-hmm. But that's absolutely true. But whether it was the trading cards, the magazines, listening to Vince Scully, the sports pages, I just was hooked as a kid. And I was just fascinated with all the background, not just the Dodgers, but baseball in general as far as National, American League, and things like that. And the stadium was only 10 minutes away from where I live in South Pasadena. So it was just the perfect place to have in your childhood and then in your adulthood. And uh, as, as I get older and older, the stadium gets better and better. I wish I looked as good as the stadium does. <laughs> yeah, we're about the same, same age as the stadium, aren't exactly. we? Exactly. So did you grow up in Southern California? I did. Born in Pasadena, uh, grew up in South Pasadena, and attended my very first game. The sad thing is for my family, my idea of tracing my roots is knowing that my very first game, uh, July 15, 1972 at the Expos, I can look at the field level and see row 44, row M, seat number one, 
uh, 44M number one. That's where it all started. And amazingly, I still remember that day like it was yesterday. I didn't know the circumstances of the game, but I was like, what is this place? This is, why is this person in front of me writing down notes in a magazine? Turns out he was scoring the game. People are eating all sorts of food. They're, I hear all the music and the public address announcer and everything like that. It just bombarded my senses, and I thought, wow, this has got to be a special place. I had no idea as a kid that I had hit the bullseye in terms of something that I would love for the rest of my life. Wow, that was like more than 50 years ago. I, but the time just flies. Uh, you know, the other thing about tracing my roots, I'm born opening day 1965. What are the odds of that? And so people wonder, you know, what's your heritage? And you go, well, I think I'm Norwegian. I think I'm a little Irish. But I do know that Warren Spahn beat Claude Osteen 3-2 to two when he was pitching for the Mets, April 20, 1965. So that's the funny part. It's just natural to me. And I don't really root. I work for the team, but I can't say that I root because – my job doesn't change. You're, you're just, how boring would it be if you knew what was going to happen? So you have to have the peaks and valleys, the roller coasters, because they say, well, if you didn't have pain, how would you know what joy is? And it's the same thing as far as either a losing streak. Right now, you know, we've been in the playoffs every, every year of the decade. But when you think about the end of the 1988 World Series until the 2008 Division Series, that's 20 years without winning a playoff series. So it goes in cycles, and you just never know. You can look at some of the greatest moments in Dodger history, and they occurred when nobody particularly was paying attention. If it was a maybe your second division season or a losing streak, and all of a sudden there's four home runs in a game, there's a perfect game, there's a triple play, things like that. Things just pop out of nowhere. So it's the ultimate reality show, and I just never get tired of it. So what did you have for breakfast this morning? Uh, it was something very filling because I was a little, I should have had more coffee, but that's the funny thing too. I'll tell you all the details of the 1946 playoff with the Cardinals losing two games to none. The, the end of that, and then I'm going, where did I park my car? What, do I have gas in my car? Things like that. Why did I come into the kitchen? I'm not really sure. Exactly. I'm not really hungry. Why am I here? <laughs> so what, what fueled that? that historian bug in you from such a young age? Was there a teacher? Was there somebody that, or was it just coming here for the first time? I think it was just coming here and then you learned about Ben Scully on the television and you just get hooked up into this whole thing. It's like a matrix because you've got the sports writers, you've got the radio, you've got the television, and then you realize people love to talk about it. And that's the fun thing too. You see the adults wearing the caps. You realize the adults used to be kids because they're talking about ball players from the 50s and 60s. And this, you, you realize the nostalgia. And the thing that really helped me, I think, 1974 is the first team that I really follow. And they win the pennant. And going into the 74 season, Hank Aaron is knocking on the door trying to beat Babe Ruth's record. So I think I collected the trading cards in 73. I'd gone to my first game in 72. But 1974, that's really when it just exploded in terms of knowing the situation. My favorite player, Jimmy Wynn, the toy cannon, later in the year he had hit a grand slam against the Reds September the 15th. That's the first time I ever heard the crowd just explode because it's a, it's a pennant race with the Reds. They're only up by a game and a half. If they lose that game, it goes back down to a half a game. But they win 7-1. to one. Garvey hits a homer after the slam. 
and just things like that. It's like the movie Pride of the Yankees where the kid in the hospital bed hears the home run by Babe Ruth on the radio and the eyes get real wide. And, and I think that's how I was as a kid because it was just so exciting. And then how amazing as an adult to be able to meet and work with Vin Scully, but also the former players. And then you can hear behind the scenes what was going through their minds. So you can get the view as a fan. You can collect the trading cards, get the autographs and things like that. But then somebody like Steve Garvey for 50 years, he'll just call up on the phone. Hey, Steve, what's up? And you'll talk about something. It doesn't necessarily have to be something nostalgic. It could be something in the present that he's going to work on or an anniversary or something like that. That's just the amazing thing. The other thing, too, I think is important, the ballpark itself. When I go out in the bleachers, I am a kid again because growing up in the left field pavilion and the autograph Sundays and things like that, the architecture, I can look at all the spots around the ballpark where I either got an autograph, I saw a special moment. Um, it, it just it's, it's just like a wonderful, haunted stadium of memories, but very pleasant memories. Uh, but it's kind of like Notre Dame when they say, wake up the echoes. Uh, I'm walking out of here early in the morning or at night and it's all empty. I'm never alone because there's just so many memories. They just got some chills. <laughs> That's very nice. Well done. Um, the Dodgers haven't really always been great about honoring their past and past players. And it seems like with this new ownership group, they're trying to pull their arms out and bring everybody back that, that they can. To what extent have you seen that kind of evolve over the time that you've, you've been the historian? I think the evolution, it, I think everything goes in cycles in terms of uh, whether you're winning, when you're losing, things like that. Look back in Brooklyn, uh, they had a golden jubilee uh, for the 75th anniversary of Brooklyn Ball. But then sometimes they'll do the old-timer days, sometimes they won't, and that would be in Brooklyn. When they first came out here to Los Angeles, they didn't have the old-timer days with Brooklyn. They wanted to have their own identity, and so they would be like Pacific Coast League stars and Hollywood stars and things like that. The first old-timers day is 1971, and then they retire the numbers for the first time in 1972. And I think lately... Uh, you're absolutely right in terms of having more alumni involved. And I think because of social media, because of the Internet, uh, back in the day just with newspapers and periodicals like magazines, you're not really going to be able to spread the word. But now, let's say a former player like Anandre Ethier and Eric Carroll, Sakini Landro with our Dodger Legends Bureau and, and Legends of the Dodgers in terms of a new program honoring all these great players that don't necessarily have their number retired, but this year Manny Moda and Oral Hershiser joining Kirk Gibson and others as far as Legends of Dodger Baseball. There's a celebration of the history, and that's the beauty because the new owners come along and what they purchased, they didn't just purchase the stadium, they didn't just purchase the team itself, uh, but in a way they became the stewards of a wonderful history that goes back, uh, a bi-coastal history, and not only do you have Brooklyn and Los Angeles, but you've got that amazing storyline of Jackie Robinson and how he changed the world in the 1940s and that lasting legacy. A legacy indeed, chock full of collectibles and arcane bits of trivia, and even an evolution of nicknames for the team now known as the Dodgers. Mark and I get into that by way of a discussion of our favorite pieces of Dodger memorabilia. Somehow I got my hands on the Jackie Robinson rookie card that came out in that series where there's the yellow background and everything. 
I understand that's that thing is pretty darn coveted, right? That's very impressive. I've got the 1947 Bond bread card that when I went to go visit Superfan Sal Rocca in Tennessee in 2008, uh, he had several of those, and he gave that to me as a gift, which was really cool because, you know, Sal and I had a great understanding because he was a great historian of, of Dodger baseball. And I never presumed to be the one as far as the Ken Jennings asked me anything, I'm the smartest, blah, 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 because I tell people I'm just the lucky one that has the business card. I went from being a nut to a specialist having that business card. So I like to think there's thousands and thousands of people like me all around the world that study and savor Dodger history. And knock on wood, I'm, I've just been the fortunate one to be able to work here. So what's a book the fans should read to really get back and get deep into Dodger history to really kind of understand the, the legacy, the tradition of Dodger baseball? Well, there are a couple. Bums by Peter Goldenbach. He did an oral history of the Brooklyn Dodgers, which was very important because he did it in the mid-1990s when so many of those former players were still alive, and he did it in transcription form. So you can really get you know, the ins and outs of not only Jackie Robinson, but Leo DeRocher and everything they went through. And how they spoke. Exactly. And then, in, and then we did a book, 2012, The Dodgers from Coast to Coast. The most important thing about that was I once spoke at the Getty and they gave me a present and they gave me this big coffee table book and the pictures look like postage stamps. And I'm like, you got to be kidding me. You're at the Getty and it's just going to be words. So this is a coffee table book, but there's no essay over 500 words because we wanted to put in artwork, memorabilia, and artifacts as far as we've, Gary Cypress, the Super Dodger Collector, uh, let us reproduce the 1889 letter that admitted us to the National League the following season. So those type of artifacts. So that was a great project to put together. And so I would suggest to Dodger fans that really gives you a great look as far as the whole history, artifacts, and everything like that. Because everybody knows what years they win, uh, the heartbreaks and everything like that. You just want to show not only the behind-the-scenes story, but the cool stuff as far as uh, the artwork, the memorabilia, and, and things like that. And they weren't always the Dodgers. So let's go back and let's let's go over the iterations of the Dodger organization. They started out as the bridegrooms? Well, back in or the, the Robins? Back in back in the eighteen eighties you had six guys get married during the off season, so that becomes the bridegrooms. Uh, then Wilbert Robinson was one of their managers for a very, very long time, nineteen fourteen to nineteen thirty one, so they became the Robins when Robins when Wilbert Robinson leaves they decide, okay, we're not doing Robins anymore because the owner said, let's get off that. And so 1932, they actually took a nickname from the 1890s, Trolley Dodgers, but they shortened it to Dodgers. Back in the day in Brooklyn, with all the maze of streetcars and everything like that, our nickname is actually, don't get hit by the train. Mm. And ironically, and this is a horrible irony, but in 1890, the pennant-winning manager, that was his demise 10 years later. He got hit by a train. Which wasn't that unusual back no, in those days. No, no, exactly. And even, but and I say what the uh, the grandson wrote about this, like what an, what an irony that uh, uh, grandpa's, uh, doing a horse and carriage and he gets nailed by a trolley but that's in 1932 so uh, they had handless superbas a lot of times it was a playoff of uh, Broadway shows and things like that and there's a display of uniforms at Dodger Stadium and for the first 50 years 
it would just be maybe the, the, the city's name. So Brooklyn, Cincinnati, Chicago, things like that. People really didn't get into the nicknames as, until merchandising came along. Mm. So when you look at the old Dodger uh, uniforms, there's not Dodger on the script and uh, on the actual uniform till 1938. And that's kind of a mystery because 1937, if you'd been at a Dodger game, it wouldn't have been, let's go blue. The Brooklyn was in green. Yeah, it was and kind they, of a, almost like a yeah, Kelly. They game, just right? decided to have an experiment of green, and then the next year, probably Larry McPhail, who had taken over as the team president, hired a graphic artist, and you had that beautiful Dodger script, which is now a landmark, a staple in sports. So ever since 1938, we've had that script, and the cool thing was the one year that we had Babe Ruth as a first base coach, that was the year, the first year that we had the script. And the answer is no, he did not wear number three, he wore it, uh, number 35 on the back of his jersey. As a first base coach. As a first base coach. Wow. Well, as you can hear, Langell is an encyclopedia of Dodger historical information. And you'll hear more of our interview in an upcoming episode. But for now, that's it for this special Dodgers road trip episode of the Dodgers Homestand podcast. I learned something. I hope you did too. And I hope this gets you through until the Dodgers return to Blue Heaven on Earth for a six-game homestand that starts on April 28th with a three-game series against the St. Louis Cardinals and then three games against Trey Turner, Bryce Harper, and the Philadelphia Phillies. Until then, I'm your host, Todd Lights, PA announcer for your Los Angeles Dodgers, and we'll see you at the ballpark. Now taking the field, your Los Angeles Dodgers! Thank you for listening to Dodgers Homestand with stadium announcer Todd Lights, taking you behind the scenes at Chavez Ravine and giving you a bird's eye view of Dodgers baseball both on and off the field. Join us for our next episode, and if you haven't already, subscribe wherever you get your favorite podcasts. <laughs>